Welcome to the sermon podcast of Exodus Church, located in Belmont, North Carolina. For more information about our church and the many ways you can be involved, please go to our website at theexoduschurch.org or email us at info at theexoduschurch.org. If you'll take your Bible and turn to Titus, Titus is uh, toward the end of Paul's letters in the New Testament, um, right behind First and Second Timothy, right before uh, Philemon, I think. Yeah. Um, it's right there toward the end of the New Testament. That's where we're going to be in just a moment. We've been in this series called Renovate. And the subtitle for this series is Finding Power for Lasting Change. And over the last few weeks, we've been talking about how every action, attitude, or habit has three levels to it. So it has the surface level. That's, that's what you see. That's the action, attitude, or habit. That's, that's the surface just underneath that is what we've called the subfloor. That's, uh, that, those are some things that our souls crave and the means by which we think we'll find it. We've talked about comfort, approval, uh, unhealthy preoccupation with control, and then last week was success. We talked about those kind of four things that our souls crave and a, a, a way we think we will find it. And then underneath that subfloor is really the source of what we see on the surface. The source of what we see on the surface is a faith issue. We've rejected something right about God, and we've embraced something wrong about ourselves. We've rejected something right about God, and we've embraced something wrong about ourselves. And so we've been looking at these four truths about God. Some people call them the four G's. They're going to be on the screen for you to read as I read them myself. Uh, The first one was God is great, so we don't have to be in control. Obviously, that's addressing this issue of our need to be in charge. Second, God is glorious, so we don't have to fear others. That's getting at this uh, desire we have for the approval of others. The Bible calls it often the fear of man. The third one is God is good, so we don't have to look elsewhere. This is getting at an unhealthy preoccupation with avoiding difficulty and escaping pain so that we run uh, to pleasures apart from God rather than running to him. So this is dealing with the idol of comfort. Then the fourth one is God is gracious, so we don't have to prove ourselves. This was last week where, where I talked about this unhealthy preoccupation with success where we find our identity and value in our merits rather than in God's grace. And last week I shared this line at the end of the sermon that you have nothing to prove and no one to impress because the only one to impress doesn't need to be. This focusing on this idea of God being gracious so we don't have to prove ourselves. Well, after preaching that, I get on an airplane to go to a meeting with um, some of our network leaders. Um, And I'm uh, preparing for this meeting. And man, these are some just high-level leaders. Like, uh, one of them's named Joby Martin. He leads the Church of 1122 in Jacksonville, Florida. They've got like 10,000 people in their church. He's an amazing leader. He's this cross between Chris Pratt and Charles Spurgeon, hilarious and can preach the, preach the paint off the wall. Just an exceptional leader. Uh, another one there was Tyler Jones. He's uh, another exceptional leader. In fact, for the first three years of our church, Nathan Chapman would tell me that he was his favorite church planter, which, you know, made me feel great all over. Uh, and then there were all these other church, church leaders that, man, just high level leader guys. 
and I'm about to go into this meeting, and I'm in my hotel room, and I'm kind of doing some prep work. Well, uh, about a year ago, I started needing to wear readers, okay? Um, now, I, I don't need them when I preach, and I've asked my doctor that. I'm like, look, I'm really proud. I need you to tell me if I need to start wearing these all the time. She's like, no, as long as you wear them at your computer or when you're reading, you're fine. Okay, great. Can I get that in writing? Because people are going to ask. Um, so I've been, I've started wearing readers. So I'm in my hotel room preparing to go into this meeting. And I realize these guys have never seen me in readers. I'm about to go into this meeting and I'm going to need to wear my readers. And, and then I start thinking, how far back can I sit from the table? To where I don't have to actually... Now, I don't use them when I preach because I can make the font as big as I need to on my iPad, right? So I'm thinking, how far back? And then I, then I think to myself, man, you're an idiot. Like yesterday, you got in front of all these people and said, you have nothing to prove and no one to impress. And now you're really worried about proving yourself and impressing these men. I mean, and I tell you that not, not to say that I'm a hypocrite, like... Because I don't, I'm, I'm not. Like, by God's grace, I'm not a hypocrite. A hypocrite is someone who knowingly puts something forward for others to see when they know something's not true in their heart. Okay? That's what a hypocrite is. What I am is a mess. I'm a mess. And I'm sitting in my hotel room thinking, I can be effective or I can be proud. I can't be both of them today. Okay? And so I get in the meeting, I put my glasses on, they start giving me a hard time about it ripping me, you know, about being old and all that stuff and other things. And then two of them pull theirs out of their bag, you know. <laughs> and my friend next to me who hasn't gotten them yet said, he puts mine on. He's like, oh, wow, I can see. Another buddy, another buddy says, yeah, I'm not putting these on. I've got them, but I'm not putting them on because I feel like my eyes are just going to give up if I ever start, you know. And so, man, I tell you that to say this, like, I am a mess, okay? I'm a mess, and I need Jesus a lot. There are places in my heart that I believe, I believe everything I said last week. And sometimes I don't walk in everything I believe. And when I see those places, I have three choices. I can ignore it. I can try to fix it. Or I can run to Jesus. And that's what I want us to do today. Because that's the only hope we have, is to run to him. Ignoring it's not going to change anything. Me trying to fix it, I might deal with surface. Certainly not going to deal with the source. But if we get to Jesus, we'll see lasting change. So that's what I want for us. And to do that, we're going to go to the book of Titus. Now, Titus is a letter written by a guy named Paul to Titus, who was a church planter, a pastor on the island of Crete. Now, Paul says he's left him on this island to put what remained into order. That's what he says in verse one, uh, chapter one, verse five. He's to put what remains into order. And what that becomes is he's supposed to appoint elders on the island to, to lead the church. He's supposed to establish community where disciples can be made. He's to declare the, declare the gospel. He's to teach sound doctrine. He's to um, get that church mobilized for mission and to serve the community. He's to do all this. And there's a incredible challenge before him because Crete was really hard ground, okay? 
Uh, in Titus 1, verse 12, it says, One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. So that's, the, that's kind of the cultural reality that Titus is working in. Scholars tell us that at this time when this was written, the, the island was known for mercenaries and pirates. Okay, So Paul drops Titus in the middle of a Pirates of the Caribbean movie and says, plant a church. That's what he's dealing with. And so Paul tells Titus, listen, these are hard people. You're going to have to speak to them in a hard way. Look at verse 13 of chapter 1. He says, this testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. In other words, hey, Titus, these are hard people. You're going to need to get in their face and tell them the truth sharply if you're going to see change. And so then you might wonder, if the ground is that hard and Titus is going to be, have to be that forceful, what's he going to say? What's he going to say? So Paul tells him that in verse 11 of chapter 2. It says, For the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke, with all authority, let no one disregard you. So these people who need you to speak sharply and to rebuke them, what are you supposed to say? You're supposed to tell them about grace. Now, we might not have expected that to be what Paul tells him to say. Uh, for some of us, we understand grace. Maybe we understand grace to be a prayer you say before the meal. Uh, maybe you understand grace to be a person. They want you to say grace, she passed away 30 years ago. Maybe that's kind of what we understand about grace. Um, for some of us, we understand grace to be a posture, like she's so full of grace. Um, sometimes we see grace to be permission. Well, it's just grace. I can, it's okay. I can do what I want. It's all grace. And if we understand grace to be any of those things, we don't really understand what Paul is telling Titus to, Titus to talk about in this passage. Here, um, Grace is even more than pardon, which is sometimes what we think about when we think about grace. It's more than pardon. Here, grace is not just pardon, but it's the power to cleanse our hearts and change our lives. And so what Titus is supposed to rebuke these people sharply about is this grace that doesn't just pardon our sin, but it's got the power to cleanse our heart and change our lives. That's the grace we're going to talk about today because that's the grace that is our only hope. So I want to pray for us, and then we're going to jump into this passage and see what God's Word has for us today. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you for your kindness to us. Thank you for your love for us. And Lord, we ask that you would show us your grace today, that the grace of God would uh, be clear, the grace of God would be compelling in our hearts, and the grace of God would just capture us today, Lord. Would you do that? Would you do that? Would you capture us with your grace today? So, Lord, I pray you'd uh, give me uh, clarity and uh, words that are clear and compelling and bold. And, Lord, that you, Holy Spirit, would speak to each heart listening to this. And we pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen. We're going to see two things about God's grace today. We're going to see that God's grace has appeared. 
And then we're going to see that God's grace has a purpose. Look first at God's grace has appeared. Look at verse 11. It says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Now, this word appeared is the Greek word that we get the word epiphany from. And what Paul is trying to get at here is that God's grace has appeared. It wasn't discovered by us. We weren't looking for it. It's not deserved by us. We didn't earn it. We didn't, as, as, a ra- as a human race, we didn't level up to something where God said, oh, okay, great, they deserve it now. Paul is saying God's grace appeared. God's grace showed up, which reminds us that God made the first move. He said God's grace appeared. And it appeared in Jesus Christ, his person, who he is, and his work what he's done. Let's first look at verse 13 and see kind of who he is. Now, in verse 13, it says, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, there are two appearings in this passage. The the first one is when Jesus came, was born, lived, died, rose again. The second is his appearing when he returns. So those are the kind of the two appearings here, and you and I live between those two. And here in verse 13, it describes the person of Jesus, and it says that he is our great God. You see, Jesus is not just a good man. He's not just a good moral teacher. He's not just a philosopher. He is fully God, has been, is, always will be. The Bible says in John 1, 1, the word uh, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. This Jesus has eternally existed as God. And then in John 1, 14, it says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So this eternal great God, the Bible says, took on flesh, became a man. He is and will always be fully God fully man. He is our great God. That's who he is. The second part, the second way grace has appeared is not just who Jesus is, but what Jesus did. We see his grace appear in his work and the work of Jesus. And it says in verse 11, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Now, when it says all people, that's not universalism. That's not teaching that just everybody gets to go to heaven. Now, anyone can, anyone who trusts Jesus can, but he's not teaching that everyone does whether they trust Jesus or not, okay? What he's saying here is that it's bringing salvation for all people. See, Jews in this day understood that Jesus was simply the Jewish Messiah, that he had only come for those who were ethnically Jewish. And what Paul is saying, no, 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 Jesus came for a people from all around the world. In fact, in Revelation, it says he came for a people from every tribe and tongue and nation. Another way we could understand this, bringing salvation to all people, is that Jesus came bringing salvation to all kinds of people. And what that means for me and for you is that there's no story listening to this that Jesus can't redeem. There's no story listening to this that Jesus can't save. There's no, there's no sin you've committed. There's no path you've taken. There's nothing you've done that Jesus can't redeem. And that's good news. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. How could he bring salvation for all people? Look at verse 14. 
This is talking about Jesus in verse 13, but in 14 it says, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness. How could, how could Jesus bring salvation for all people? He gave himself for us. The Bible tells us that Jesus willingly, willingly laid down on the cross to die for your sin and mine. He, he was not manipulated. He was not forced. He, was not, um, he, he, he wasn't made to do this. He willingly laid his life down. He gave himself for us. Why? To redeem us from all lawlessness. That word redeem means to buy back. It means to pay a debt. And what the Bible tells us is that Jesus, in giving himself for us, took our took our sin on himself, paid our debt we owed for our sin so that we could be redeemed. And he says, all lawlessness, not, not some lawlessness, not part of the lawlessness, all lawlessness. So there is no sin that can't be forgiven. There's no sin that won't be forgiven if you trust Jesus who gave himself for us to redeem us. That's what the grace of God tells us. Now, one of my favorite passages in the New Testament that speaks about this is in Colossians chapter 2, verse 13. It's going to be on the screen. It says this, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. I love that word all there. All of them. Not, not most of them. Not many of them. Not some of them. All of them. I know this is the time of year when everybody kind of maxes out on their hand sanitizer allotment, you know. You come out of Target, that's the first thing you're doing. And we are all very, you know, feel good about ourselves when we do that. Now, I don't know if you've read the bottle or not, but on the, I'm, I'm one of those. So on the bottle, it says kills 99.99% of germs. Well, if you've noticed, it has an asterisk by it. Okay? And if you flip the bottle around, it says kills 99.99% of many common germs. I'm like, well, that's not even most. That's many. Like, how many is many? I mean, and, and we, and, and here's what I remember. I remember that Jesus doesn't forgive many of my sin. He forgives all of them. How? The verse continues. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside nailing it to the cross. Now, Paul's using a very common cultural reference of his day. In Paul's day, if someone committed a crime, they would go before a judge and the judge would give them a certificate of debt and it would include what they've done and what they have to do to pay for it. So it would have their crime and their punishment on this certificate. And then while they're serving their time or doing whatever they have to do to pay for their debt, they would have this certificate posted next to them. So if they're in prison, it would be posted on the wall. If they're in chain, it would be posted next to them. If they're in stocks, posted for all to see. And when they had paid their time, they would take that certificate back to the judge and the judge would stamp one Greek word over that certificate. That word is tetelestai, which means paid in full. And as Jesus hung on the cross, one of his last words was, to tell us die, so that all who hope in him 
might have paid in full, stamped across their life. He gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness. God's grace has appeared. He paid our debt. He bought us back. God's grace appeared. But God's grace also has a purpose. Now, we see two purposes of God's grace here in Titus 2. Uh, It trains us in verse 12, and it changes us in verse 14. Now, it may be that your understanding of grace is simply pardon, that it's it's simply that Jesus forgives you of your sin, he redeems you of all lawlessness. And if that's all grace is, that's still pretty awesome. I mean, it's pretty awesome that we can be forgiven of all of our sin. But grace is more than that. It's not simply, it's certainly not permission. Like it's not, hey, well, I can do whatever I want because of grace. Grace, I can do it. It's certainly not permission. But it's not pardon either, only. It's the power to cleanse our heart and change our life. And so here we see in verse 12 that God's grace trains us. Look at verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, verse 12, training us. So grace trains. We think about grace forgiving, sustaining, empowering. Grace also trains. Training us to do what? To renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, uprighted, godly lives in the present age. So grace teaches us to say no to some things, to renounce some things, and to say yes to some things, to renounce uh, ungodliness and worldly passion. So anything that the, the world might tell us that we need or should want, it tells us to renounce those things. Control, grace tells us renounce that. Uh, uh, the approval of others, renounce that. This unhealthy preoccupation with avoiding pain and pursuing comfort apart from God, renounce that. This unhealthy preoccupation with success so that we, uh, we value ourselves because of our work, not because of God's grace. Renounce that. And to say yes to some things. It, says it trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in the present age. Now, can you imagine being a Cretan and you're known as liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons And you hear that God's grace will train you to be self-controlled, not a glutton. To be upright, not a liar. To be a godly human being, not an evil beast. That's what God's grace does. It trains us to renounce things that do not honor the Lord and to embrace things that do. That's what God's grace does. It trains us to say no to the wrong things, that do not honor God, and yes to the right things that do honor God. God's grace trains. It has a purpose. It trains us. But not only does God's grace train us, God's grace also changes us. Look at verse 14. Who gave himself, this is Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So not only does God's grace train, it changes. Notice the change here. To purify for himself a people for his own possession. Now this word purify has the idea of being cleansed and set apart for a purpose. 
So if you go into the dentist or if you have surgery, they have tools that have been cleaned and they're set apart for a purpose. That's what we are in Jesus Christ. We have been cleaned and we are set apart for a purpose. We have been cleaned. We are being cleaned. I mean, there are parts of my life where I look in my heart and life and I'm like, Lord, please clean that out. And, and God's work of cleaning and changing me is, is hard work. Not for him. Like, he's not phased by it. It's hard for me, though, sometimes. When I'm face-to-face with my control issue and I'm like, Lord, please help me. Help me with this control issue. Very often, he's going to bring me to a place where I feel out of control. And I have to be reminded, God is great, so I don't have to be in control. So many times when I'm dealing with a fear of man, he's going to put me in situations where I realize how much I care about pleasing people. I've got to be face-to-face with this reality that I really care about what these people think of me. And then sometimes in situations where God's working on a desire for comfort or achievement, Sometimes the way he cleans that out is either he causes us to fail or sometimes he causes us to succeed. And both of those are um, reminders that it's not enough. The great theologian Jim Carrey um, said this. He said this, I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so they can see it's not the answer. Now, he's crazy, but that's a great line. It's a great line. I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so they can see that it's not the answer. And very often, God's work of cleaning us, cleaning out our hearts and those places where we need to be changed, very often, very often, he puts us in situations to remind us of how much we need him. So being... Being cleaned out is hard. Listen, just because grace does it doesn't mean it's not hard. It can be very hard. Grace purifies us for himself as a people for his own possession. But notice, it doesn't just clean us, it changes us. These people that are purified are also zealous for good works. That means our hearts are changed. Our hearts are changed. We, we were wanting to pursue all the things grace tells us to say no to. Now we want to be zealous for good works. That's a heart change. Our want to is now different. That's what grace does. And so, so often we understand grace to be pardon and we never get to power and and we never see where our hearts are clean and our hearts are changed. And Paul wants us to understand that grace is more than pardon. It's the power to cleanse our heart and change our lives. That's what grace is. And so when we look at places in our lives that we uh, want to see different, that are, we, want, we want change to happen, we see an area that we're like, man, I, that doesn't look like Jesus. I really want it to look like Jesus. We can ignore that. We can try to fix it on our own. Or we can run to God's grace. And God's grace is the power to clean all that out and change it so that we look more like Jesus. So how do we apply these things uh, in our lives? Well, two things. First, I I want want us to see that grace works 
in a discipling community. Okay, so when when Paul is telling Titus to declare these things, exhort, rebuke with all authority, he wants him to do this in the context of a church. Okay? Now, certainly, I'm not saying change doesn't happen individually as we read God's word, pray, study, but the, the, the environment for this, grace works in a discipling community. And Paul has called Titus to go to this island to appoint elders to lead the churches there and to set up a discipling community. That's what he's talking about in chapter two of Titus. And this discipling community has two components, okay? First, they want to teach sound doctrine. That's what it says in chapter two, verse one. Paul says, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. That's the first part of a discipling community. The second part is that they are to train one another as disciples. In verses 2 through 6, we see this environment where older men are to teach younger men and older women are to teach younger women. Okay, There's to be this discipling relationship where uh, these older men and women are investing in younger men and women so that they grow in what it means to follow Jesus. Look at verse 2. It says, older men are to be sober-minded dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith and love, and in steadfastness. Now, verses 3 through uh, 5 is about women. We'll come back to that. But what older women are to do is train younger women. Now, in verse 6, it says, likewise. And what he means there is, just like older women are training younger women, older men are to train younger men. Look at what it says. Urge the younger men to be self-controlled. They got one thing. Everybody else got a long list of things. Younger men, we just need you to be self-controlled. If you can just be self-controlled, we're going to be good. We're going to be good, okay? Real low baseline, okay? Now, um, older women, so older men are to invest in younger men such that they are self-controlled. Then older women are to invest in younger women. Verse 3, older, uh, older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They're to teach what is good. And so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Now, so what, what Paul is calling Titus to do is to, to establish a discipling community where not only is sound doctrine being taught, but there are relationships where Older men and women are investing in younger men and women. Now, one of our strategic priorities for our church for this year is that we want to develop replicating disciples. That's one of the things we want to do. We want to see that happen. And so to achieve that, um, we're going to be following kind of Paul's path here in Titus. Uh, we want to teach what accords with sound doctrine. Now, we want to do that all the time, Sunday morning. Any, anytime anybody's teaching the Bible, we want to be doing that. But there's some specific events that we're going to be hosting throughout the year called Deeper. First of these is March 5th. It's going to be on the doctrine of Jesus. Now, what I do on a Sunday morning, if we can maybe put this here, seminaries like here, this is going to be somewhere in this area, okay? So it's going to be like, we're going to be teaching some theology, some doctrine stuff, okay? That's what uh, is the goal of that time. And you'll hear more about that. The other thing we're doing is we're working on really creating a structure and a tool where, um, where we can disciple one another in discipling relationships. And Pastor Nathan's been working on a tool called the Disciple Map. 
Uh, you're going to hear a lot about that over the next few weeks, but it's a tool to help us do Titus 2. Okay? And man, I'm so excited about seeing that happen because grace works in a discipling community. That's where it works best. Um, and so uh, there are all kinds of other ways to be involved in our church, community groups. You can serve. There's all kinds of ways to get involved and invested here in a discipling community. Um, and, and alongside those things, we want to teach sound doctrine and we want to see trained disciples made. And so we're really hopeful about those things because grace works in a discipling community. Second thing, and with this I'm done, is grace works. Grace works. It works. Very often, I'll, I'll have somebody who's new to our church come up and say to me at some point, well, you talk a lot about grace. When are we going to talk about obedience? And what they mean by that is, you talk about grace. When are we going to get to what I have to do? And, and that's coming from an understanding that Jesus died for me, but the rest is up to me. So when are we going to get to the rest that's up to me? And what Paul reminds us here in Titus is that grace works. The grace of God appeared, bringing salvation to all men, all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passion and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in the present age. Grace works. And so when I'm face-to-face with an area of my life that needs to be changed, when I'm face-to-face with the reality that I do believe something, but I don't live into something fully, I, I can ignore it. And try to fix it. And, and many of us have strong wills. And, and perhaps you could say, tell me how to fix it. I'll fix it. But what you're fixing is the surface. You're not getting down to what's going on in your heart. You're not really getting down to the real source of the problem. And then even if you look at the source of your problem, all your fixing, all your changing of habits can't solve your biggest problem. And your biggest problem is not the habit that you see. The biggest problem is that you've rejected something right about God and embraced something wrong about you. And the Bible calls that idolatry. And the Bible calls idolatry sin. And so even if you change your surface behavior, you still have underneath a heart of sin and you have a debt before a holy God. And so even if, even if, you could deal with surface, you haven't dealt with source. And so if you think, I'm just going to fix it, you're not going to fix it because you can't fix what's broken about you. But Jesus can. And the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. He gave himself. He gave himself to redeem us from all lawlessness. And he gave himself to purify us so that we would be clean and to make us zealous to change our heart. And so when we're face to face with the realities about us that we want to see changed, ignoring it's not going to change it. You trying to fix it's not going to change it. Running to Jesus is where we see change. And I say running too. That's not really even the way to say it because it feels like he's far away. You see, the reality is we've been running from him. And all we do is what the Bible says calls repent. We, we, just, we just turn around. And he's right there. Like, it's not like we have to turn around and run find him. No, 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 no. We turn around, he's right there. He is on you like white on rice. Like he is right there when we turn around. 
And there's this great story in Luke, Luke 15. The prodigal son comes home and the Bible says that his father, when he was a long way off, ran to meet him. And so if you've been running from God and you turn around, he is right on you. Like you don't have to find him. He's found you. And it's possible that over the last few weeks, you've been listening to all this and you're maybe not yet a follower of Jesus. And you're hearing all these realities about the source of what's going on in your life. And you've acknowledged, yeah, I, I don't, I have rejected things that are true about God and I've embraced things that are wrong about me. And, and you've realized, and I, I understand and realize that I've rejected the God who loves me and sent his son to die for me. And, and I, I, I would just say to you, if that's you and you've never trusted Christ before, if you will simply turn around, turn, turn from your sin to God, he's got you. He's got you. If you will turn and confess your sin and embrace what Christ has done, he's got you. He's got you. He's not rejecting you. He's not trying to make you look. Grace of God appeared. He's got you. If you will simply repent, he's got you. And he'll redeem you from all your sin. He'll change your heart and change your life. If you'll simply trust him today. Now, many of us, we've trusted Jesus. We know he's redeemed us. We know he has. But I wonder if sometimes we stop at pardon and don't get to power. If we really think Jesus died for me, but the rest is up to me. Jesus, yep, Jesus died for me, but man, I got to do better. Jesus died, to, Jesus died for me, but I got to fix this. Jesus died for me, but I better. No, man, that's not. Grace is so much better. Like if you, if you only see grace as forgiveness, it's like only seeing an iPhone as a phone. I mean, goodness, the number of things you can do on that phone. God's grace is better than simply pardon, and that's amazing. It's not just pardon. It's the power to see a life changed. And so if you've understood being a Christian, as Jesus died for me, but the rest is up to me, I got great news for you. The grace of God's appeared. He gave himself to redeem us, to purify us, and to make us zealous. His grace wants to work in you in ways you can't even imagine. And he'll do that if you come to him. You humble yourself and pray and ask, Lord, change me. Change me. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you that you loved us so much that you sent your one and only son to live, die, and rise again. Thank you that the grace of God appeared, that Jesus gave himself to redeem us, to purify us, and to make us zealous. Lord, would you do your work of grace in our lives, Lord? We, we need you. We want you to do that. We, we are helpless apart from you to change our heart and life. So, Lord, we, we ask for you to do what you alone can. Father, I pray for my friends who, who know they don't know you yet and their hearts are beating real fast and their minds are racing. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would capture them, give them courage to just turn around, give them courage to repent. 
and fall on your grace. And Lord, for my, my, my family, my brothers and sisters here, those of us who have been bought with the blood of Jesus, we've been redeemed, and yet sometimes we think that the power is up to us. Lord, would you capture our understanding, capture our hearts with the reality of your grace? Would you do that, Lord? Would you do that? So that we might live as joyful, free, zealous followers of Jesus Christ. Would you do that? Would you do it for your glory and our good? We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.